So uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in Acts 2 this morning. We are finishing the vision series. So what we've been talking about for the past few weeks is our vision statement and these sort of identity phrases. So a few weeks ago, we talked about building leaders. Uh, Johnny Russell preached on uh, living generously. And today we're going to finish out with this mission statement we have, this, this component of being a church that we like to say is growing communities. And that's what we're going to finish up the series with. And we're going to look at Acts 2 because Acts 2 is this amazing story. Acts 2 is the story of Pentecost wherein the Christian church as we know it begins. So Acts 2 is sort of the beginning after Jesus has left the earth. He's been crucified, buried, he's resurrected, and now he's left the earth. And Acts 2 is sort of, all right, what does church look like without Jesus being here on the earth walking around among his disciples like he was? And so what I want to do, unfortunately, with, with all the text and with communion, we don't have time to read Acts 1 and 2. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to catch this up. We're going to be in the very end of Acts 2 today, Acts 2, 41 through 43. Let me just kind of give you some background, although I would say this. I encourage you to read through Acts 1 and Acts 2. Um, it is a great, great text to read, um, and it is good for you to double-check what the preachers say. So I would never, ever want you just to take my word for it on this stuff I'm, I'm talking about. I would, I would beg you to check it against the word. And so I encourage you today or tomorrow this week, read Acts 1 and 2. I'm going to recap it here. Here's what, here's what happens. Acts 1 tells us that after Jesus is raised from the dead, there's a period of time that he spends with the disciples. Okay? Some historical texts say that he spent the time showing many proofs. So he's talking to the disciples. He's walking with the disciples. You know, it kind of has this sense of like, it's really me, guys. I really did it. And so he spends time with them, teaching them, walking with them. And then what Acts 1 tells us is that there comes a point where he and the disciples are out in the countryside and he starts, he starts to tell them something because he's about to leave. And so he tells them, I want you to go back and stay in Jerusalem. So go back to Jerusalem I want you to stay there, and I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. And then he tells them, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, and when that happens, that's going to give you all kinds of power. Acts 1.8 says, you'll receive power, and I'll make you witnesses in Judea and Samaria and all the earth. Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Father, wait for the Holy Spirit. And when it comes, it's going to infuse you with power. It's going to make you witnesses and disciples and missionaries in all of the earth. He, he, he's promising them this moment of launching. Something great is going to happen. And so he's telling them, he's giving them the instructions, and then he floats into the sky. Jesus ascends into the heavens. So that should let you know, if you've never read Acts 1 and 2, it's a, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts, okay? Because what happens in Acts 1 and 2, there are so many miraculous, supernatural things that happen at the beginning of the church here on earth after Jesus has left. And so Jesus ascends into heaven. And so the disciples do what he says. They go back to Jerusalem. And in Acts 2, we get the story of what happens. It says that they meet in a room, an upper room, some sort of large room, because it's the, it's the disciples and, and other people. It's numbering about 120 is what Acts Two says. There's 120 people in this room, and they're waiting for the promise of the Father. They're waiting for what Jesus has said is going to come. And all of a sudden, this thing happens in the room where there is the sound of a giant, mighty, rushing 
wind. Interestingly enough, most Bible texts word it that way. They, they don't say, oh, they felt the wind blow through. There was a window open and it was a little breeze. No, it's just the sound of a rushing wind. So I told you it was going to get wild. So they hear this loud sound. Then flames of fire appear over their head. Okay? Told you it was nuts. Then they begin to speak in other languages. Okay? They start speaking in languages that are not their own. And Acts 2 says that in the city of Jerusalem, the people around that room hear this cacophony of sound, this wind and people with fire on their heads, and they're speaking other languages. And Acts 2 says people in the city from outlying areas begin to hear their languages. They're hearing these locals say, you know, speaking in their dialect, speaking in their language. And it even says they're, they're trying to figure it out. And many of them are saying they must be drunk. They must be drunk if, if it's, they're partying up there and they're talking gibberish and it just happens to sound like our language. And so Peter steps up to answer them, okay? And he, he answers them and then he preaches a sermon. Now, the sermon that Peter gives, I will tell you, is no less supernatural or miraculous than all that other stuff. You might think, oh, it's a sermon. He gets up, he does a big, long expository thing. Not exactly. Peter's sermon, if you look in your Bible, in my Bible, it's 586 words long. It takes about three minutes to read it out loud. Peter talks for three minutes, and Acts 2 tells us that when he's done that day, 3,000 people convert. 3,000 people make a decision to follow Jesus and get baptized in this little, tiny sermon. Can you imagine... If I spoke for three minutes and 3,000 people wanted to get saved today, that would be the most awesome day ever. So Peter speaks this sermon. It's, it's brief, but it is infused with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And there is a response. All of these people say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. So the, the start of the church, here we are at the starting line. Why would we look at that if we're going to talk about growing communities? Why would we go to Acts 2, the end of Acts 2? Well, the reason is I believe that there's no better way to find out how to be the church than to look at it in its simplest, purest form. You will hear people say this all the time. Maybe you've said it. You will hear people who, who maybe don't like church or maybe you're kind of burned out on church, and you will hear people say this a lot. Man, church has gotten so political. Church has been so messed up with money and, and, all, and people trying to take control. And you, you'll hear all these complaints about church. But what Acts 2 lets us do is it lets us travel back in time and see the church in its purest form, in its brand new, off the starting line form. And if we look at that, and if we see what they did, it would stand a reason that we could model that same behavior. We as a culture love stories like this. We love stories about great ideas a long time ago. We love stories when we hear about it that, oh, this person had an idea and everybody said he was crazy and then I, that idea ended up changing the world. I'll give you a couple of examples. Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings, two guys who worked in Silicon Valley in the year 1997, they decided they wanted to start a business that would mail DVDs to your house. It was called Netflix. And they come up with this idea in 97 and guess what? It doesn't go well. 
They struggle, limp along for about three years. And in the year 2000, some of you in the business world already know this story. In the year 2000, they finally have had enough. And they said, we've got to get some cash infusion here. We need to sell this company to somebody who's got the infrastructure and the distribution and the skill to do this thing. And so in the year 2000, they offer it to Blockbuster. They offer Netflix to Blockbuster and say, guys, we believe that people are going to want movies in their homes. We believe people don't, are going to get to the point where they don't want to go rent stuff. They just want it to come to their house. And Blockbuster said, no, not interested. And now... You all have Netflix, but probably not a Blockbuster card, okay? If you've got one on you, hang on to it. It's an antique now, okay? We love stories like that. We love to look back and go, oh, man, what a great idea. Nobody could see the wisdom of that. But look, it was such a great, pure idea. Those guys had it right. Here's another example, maybe a little bit more recent or relevant for you. It was a guy named Eric Yuan, and in the 1990s, he was trying to come to the States from China, and he was having a hard time. He, he applied for a visa to work here. He was rejected eight times before he finally got in. He began to work in communications. So Eric Yuan is having this career in the States, but he's in a relationship with someone who lives really far away. He has said it was about a 10-hour train ride, and he was tired of taking the 10-hour train ride. He did not like having to travel all this distance to see somebody. And so in the year 2011, he decides to create a thing called Zoom. Anybody been on Zoom lately? Let me tell you this. Zoom was invented in 2011. I didn't even know what Zoom was until March of this year, okay? Now I'm a Zoom ninja. I'm on it all day, every day. But we do love stories like that where we go back and say, man, look at this great idea. And nobody understood. Nobody really appreciated what it is. This is what Acts 2 is going to do for us today. It's going to allow us to travel back in time and see this great idea, the way the church starts. What a great idea, because if we look at what happened in the beginning that God has obviously blessed, we want to live that way too. So all these people come to Christ. We've got this infusion of 3,000 people. Let's look at what happens. Look at Acts 2, 41. Verse 41, we're going to read verse 41, 42, and 43. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I want to start at the end of that. I want to read verse 43. We're going to do a Christopher Nolan here and work from the ending, okay? Anybody watch Inception or Tenet or any of those? Yeah, okay, all right. You got to watch many movies, I guess. All right, so... But I want to look at this last verse because here's the deal. These three verses are telling us what happened. When the church does these things, after Jesus has left, listen to what it says. All came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All comes on everyone, miracles and wonders are done. When a community devotes itself to the working of the Holy Spirit, amazing things will happen. Now you may be thinking, Ah, community, other people, I'm an introvert, no thanks. But this is what I believe. I believe that every single person on earth, whether you're a Christian or not, you are born with a desire to live in awe. I think everyone is born with this desire to be inspired and excited and amazed and to have joy. And if you're a Christian, I believe it goes even further, that you have been given a desire to see God work 
to see him do miracles, big and small. That's in you. I believe that's in all of us. And you might even say just for today that Acts 2, 41 through 43 could be a formula for us just for today. That if we look, oh, we want, God, we want you to do miraculous wonders. We want to live in awe. Well, then we work backwards. What happened? How did that work? God, what is it that you blessed? So let's look at verse 42. Let's look at these first things the church did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Apostles teaching. Remember that the church is brand new. I heard one guy say this, that the church in one fell swoop went from 120 in attendance to 3,120 in attendance. That's a massive explosion of growth. And what, do, what does the Bible list first that they devote themselves to? The apostles teaching. Let's use the text itself to help us. So I'm going to read, if you go to verse 22, so Acts 2, 22. Let's read a little bit of Peter's sermon. I referenced this, you know, the short sermon that he gave. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. <clears throat> Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. The very first sermon of this new church, this Christian church, Jesus isn't here. The first sermon, Peter emphasizes the fact that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament promises of God, revealing himself to be both Christ and Lord. From the very beginning, Peter is giving them the foundational truth of who Jesus is. And if you keep reading, and you read Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and if you keep going, you will find that in the New Testament, the writers, the apostles, the teachers, they are constantly talking about the gospel. They are constantly reminding us of what it is we how we've come to a new life, the preaching of the gospel, the message that our sin separates us from God. We deserve his wrath and he sends his son to take our place, to bear our punishment and to redeem us to new life. That's all over the New Testament. This is one of the things that I love about Bethel. I love that Pastor Ross does this and our other campuses do it too. I love that no matter what book we're in, no matter how in-depth Pastor Ross or our other preachers are in God's word, they will always consistently share the gospel. They will draw that out because it is so key to what we are studying. It is, it is the through line through all of scripture. So this is what the early church dedicated themselves to. So if we're going to model them, if we're going to be like them, this is point one. True Christian biblical community will be dedicated to doctrine. We will be dedicated to the foundational truths of the gospel. Through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, God uses the message of the gospel to open the eyes and ears and hearts of those who are lost in their sin. The gospel is to be our priority. 
we should sing it and preach it and say it and talk about it and remind ourselves of it. It is that big of a deal. We should be dedicated to doctrine. I have a friend who told me years ago that he had grown up in church from, I mean, he was one of those they brought, since he was a baby, he grew up in the same church, little bitty Texas town. He said, it wasn't until I was 19 years old and I left home and went to college that I ever heard the gospel presented. 18 years in a church somewhere that never presented the plan of salvation, that never presented the gospel. Listen, I know that every church is unique. I know that every church it does what it does and every place is special. And, but I want, I want you to know here and if you're watching online, if you find yourself in a church that does not preach the gospel, find one that does. This is so important to the life of a Christian. Why do we care about doctrine? Why would, we, why would those Christians care about it back in the day? Why do we care? Because... God gave you a mind, and he created you to be a thinker. You're a thinker. Some of you are way better thinkers than some of us, but we're all thinkers. God built us to observe and to listen and to think and to analyze. The same God who made you a thinker is the same God who inspired the writers of the Old Testament and the New Testament. God has built your mind to work in this interpretive grid, to be thinking, analyzed, always observing. And his word, the gospel, is given to us to shape that grid. Let me read Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Very famous verse here. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word <clears throat> that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God tells us that his truth will do something. That when you are committed to the truth of the gospel, that it will accomplish what he wants it to. Not what I want it to, not what Pastor Ross wants it to, not to what your friends want it to. God's truth will do what he wants it to. Doctrine will change you. It will change you in many amazing, wonderful ways. Biblical community is dedicated to doctrine. Let's read verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So fellowship. Now I know if you've been brought up in church, you're like, oh, that sounds like he's going to tell me to join a life group. Oh, that sounds like he wants me to teach a Sunday school. Listen, when we look at what the early Christians did and how they spent time together, this is what we realize. That fellowship, being committed to fellowship, answers this need that's deep within us. You need people. I need people. Introvert, extrovert, old, young, man, woman, you need people. Many of us have learned this the hard way because here's what happens. If you try to roll solo in your life, some of us have tried that. I don't need people. I don't need God. I got this. I'm a big boy. I can do what I want. It does not take very long for you to get in a crisis and realize, oh, I, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I need some help. You need people. I need people. God has designed you to be in a community with people who know you and who love you and who want to help you. A lot of you may think, ah, I'm so weird. I'm so quirky. Let me tell you something. God, I promise, has, has people who are just as weird as you are, if not more, okay? He's designed you to be in a community where people who know how weird you are, who know how quirky you are, and they love you, and they want to help you, and they want to pray for you. And 
He's built you to be in a community with people who you know are weird and you love them and you help them and you care for them. No, listen, nobody's got it all together, okay? You're weird, okay? That's what I'm saying. You're, there's nobody normal in here. And God says, great, if all of you weirdos will commit to be in fellowship with one another, you can love each other and care for each other. You need people. I need people. True Christian biblical community will be dedicated to each other. I want to read a few verses about what God says about being dedicated to each other. Hebrews 10, 23-25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. I need to be spurred on. You need to be spurred on. Because on my own, I'll forget about love and good deeds. I will. I need people who will spur me on. And you'll forget about love and good deeds too. Now listen, I know you don't see a lot of people wearing spurs anymore. But if you have any experience with spurs, if you ever got hit with one, your body moves in a way. It's like, whoa, okay. That's what I need though. I mean, it's a silly metaphor, but that's exactly what I need. I need people in my life who every once in a while are going to go, come on, Todd, let's go. I need that. Because I will, left to my own devices, I'll get selfish, I'll get petty, I won't worry about love and good deeds. I need to be spurred on. The next one, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I need to be spurred on, yes, but I also need to be prayed for because I'm going to sin. I, I sin. You sin. I need people who are going to pray for me. I need people who I can be real with. I can say, I'm struggling with this thing. Would you guys pray that I would overcome this or that God would give me wisdom? Would you pray that I be healed from this thing? You know, you hear a lot of people say this about church. Oh, church is a bunch of hypocrites. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. Everybody's acting like they got it all together. Everybody gets up on Sunday morning. They put on their khaki pants and their perfect smile. They walk to church and act like everything's fine. Not if you're doing it this way. If you are living by James 5, 16, you go into church knowing, listen, I don't have it all together. I need people around me who are going to pray for me. I need to be around people that I'm praying for. I need to be prayed for. Last one, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I need to be spurred on. I need to be prayed for, but I need accountability too. I need people who are going to check in on me. I need people who, who have the freedom in my life to say, how are you doing on that thing? And I need to be in a relationship with people where I can ask that same question. This is what the early church devoted themselves to. I need to be spurred on. I need to be prayed for. I need to be held accountable. Biblical community is dedicated to each other. So we're dedicated to doctrine, but we're also dedicated to each other. Back to the verse 42. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, there's some debate here. Some people say that the breaking of bread in this verse refers to communion, you know, holy communion, where we take this uh, symbolic supper. And, and others say, well, no, that, they actually shared meals together. Well, the beautiful thing about the New Testament church is they did both all the time. 
And so I think we can glean both things from that text. If we look at Scripture, they did both. True Christian biblical community will be dedicated to sharing meals. I'm not... I'm not literally over spiritually. I'm I'm literally going to eat with people, having people in your home. This is what the early church did. This made the list of things that the writer of Acts thinks is important for us. Biblical community is dedicated to sharing meals. When a family gets together for a holiday or a birthday, there's almost always a meal of some kind. Some of y'all are already planning what you're going to make for Thanksgiving. Some of you, the text threads are already going, Well, Tammy's going to bring that casserole. Oh, Rob's going to make ribs. Some of you live in families like that where it's all about the food. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why that's so important. The kingdom of God so often is referred to and pictured as a banquet. It is a meal for everyone, not a private dinner for two. The dishes are for all equally, and there's more than enough for everyone. When I married Kristen, so I'm from a small family. There's me and a foster brother. That's it. Kristen's got family. Some of them I still haven't even met yet. They just come out of the woodwork. I'm like, oh, this is Aunt Johnny. Oh, hello. You know, haven't met you yet. Kristen has this huge family. And so when they get together, there's food everywhere. I mean, it's on the counter and the couch and the kids' room. I mean, it's everywhere. And so when I, when I got engaged to Kristen and started hanging out with them, I kind of hit this problem because... I, I'm a very picky eater. I'm very particular, right? And there are these big pots and pans of stuff made by people I don't really know. And like, ooh, I don't know if that's going to be very good. But here's what helped me. What helped me was there was another guy in the family who had married into the family before me, okay? He's, he's the pioneer who went before me, okay? Because this guy was worse than me because all he would eat is macaroni, okay? That's it. He was, he was a little bit older than me. And so when I started coming into the family, it, it was this awkward thing of like, Kristen had to be like, hey, I'm sorry, Todd doesn't eat that, or oh, I'm sorry, you know, whatever. And, and from the kitchen, inevitably, Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthday, July 4th, Kristen's family has way too many parties. Let me just say that. We were there all the time. But, but something would be said about food, and one of the aunts would scream from the kitchen, well, there's macaroni. And you would go in, and it would be this vat of macaroni because as people started marrying into the family and more people started coming Kristen's family decided okay you know what there's going to be enough for everybody this is why the kingdom of God is referred to a banquet all the time because there is a sense in which it's like no 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 we are a family we eat together Think about how many meals are in the Bible how many times it's referenced how many times it's used Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding feast Jesus references meals and food all the time in the parables. He cooks and eats fish with the disciples. He shares meals with sinners. He multiplies the loaves and fishes. He shares a meal with his disciples before being crucified. Paul talks about eating together all through 1 Corinthians. And in Revelation, an angel says that blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You cannot get away from meals in the Bible. It's important. And here's the interesting thing. So just a second ago, we're talking about fellowship, right? Being dedicated to each other. We read those scriptures about spurring and praying and keeping people accountable. This is such an interesting dichotomy that that, that there is this sense in which the fellowship is this very serious, um, focused, intentional 
thing. And then when you talk about meals, meals are not that. Meals are this usually this kind of casual, comfortable thing. If you are eating with me and I'm eating with you, listen, if you want to get to know me, sit across from me at Bruno's one day when I have a pepperoni pizza. You're going to learn a lot about me. He doesn't share his pizza is the one thing you would learn. But you, learn, you will get to know me in a new and fresh way if we eat together. This is what the church does. You hear people say, oh, they did life together. These people were literally in their casual time, in their reclining time, in their time away from church, they were still hanging out together. Believe it or not, every time you have a meal with another believer, you are symbolically affirming that you're family. And in fact... In a little bit, when we do communion in just a few minutes, we're affirming that that symbolic meal, that the blood of Jesus is what makes us a family. Biblical community is dedicated to sharing meals. Last one, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. This is another one that gets debated. Some people say, well, does that mean they prayed together or does that mean more of a, a official prayers that they would say, like a, like a liturgical service, like a thing that they would do in a worship service? And the reality is, much like the breaking of the bread, they did both, which I think the point is clear here that true Christian biblical community will be dedicated to worship. A community that God blesses is a community that constantly and passionately focuses on publicly thanking God and praying on behalf of each other. You know, I made such a big deal about you need people, but you also need the church. I'll tell you this story. I got in trouble from my wife in the first service because I didn't finish the story. I kind of left them hanging. So I'll try not to do that this time. Years ago, Ross Strader and I uh, went to this lunch and there was, a, there was a, uh, some people in the community that wanted to have a debate. They wanted to debate Christianity and atheism. Okay? And so they had, they had reached out to Ross to say, hey, would you want to be the, the guy you know, arguing for Christianity in this debate? And we'll invite everybody in the community or whatever. And so we go to this lunch just to talk about it. And so it's literally, you know, Christian guys are sitting on one side of the table and the atheist guys are on the other. And so Ross, to his credit, the whole time is, is really sort of a- angling for something very different. You know, he's sort of saying, guys, I, this, you know, this, feels, this needs to be more of a conversation and this is feeling kind of really angry, and I don't know if we want to do that. And, and I remember one of the guys on the other side of the table, he wasn't the main dude. I don't even know who he was. It's kind of a lull in the conversation. He goes, this guy goes, well, wait, let me ask you a question, preacher, which is always a good sign. Let me ask you a question. You, don't think, you think maybe you're a little scared? You're a little scared that if you do this and your people will come and then they'll realize what's what and then they won't come to church and you won't have any people because that's where your bread is buttered. And I remember thinking it was the weirdest thing to say. But I also remember in my heart being like, are you kidding? Like, I want the church to thrive because God deserves it. Church is not an ego game. I don't. I don't want this place to be filled with worship and prayer because it makes me feel good. I want it to be filled with worship and prayer because that's what God says we do and that's what he deserves. And I remember Ross communicating that, sort of telling the guy, like, no, I, I'm not uh, afraid. I, I'm confident in the, in the truth of, 
of Scripture and, and sort of not, not confronting the guy, but really just answering him with, with grace and compassion. And, and I remember at the meal that the tension just sort of evaporated because Ross was honest about it, but also so confident of what worship really is and, and why we do it. I can't do anything without God's help. Neither can you. You need church. Some of us really think we don't need church. Some of us really think we don't need prayer. You know, one of the surprising things about COVID-19 to me is that, is that when stuff started getting pulled out of people's lives, you know, so you don't go to the office and you don't go to school and you can't go to the restaurant and you, all these things started get, getting taken, people have been getting honest about their need. They're seeing their need that they need something bigger. You need something bigger than just normal, everyday life. And when those things are getting pulled away, it's very convicting because like, oh, I mean, I was so wrapped up in going to the office. I'm so wrapped up in what I'm doing with the kids' school. I'm so wrapped up in where I get to go eat. I'm so, and when those things go away, you realize how much faith you've placed in those things. And here is Acts 2.42 saying that the early church devoted themselves to prayer. You need worship. You need it. God's built you that way. You need the divine. It's more than just showing up a couple Sundays a month. It is your lifeblood. You need to be in a room giving God praise. You need to have something bigger and stronger than you are that can, you can lift your eyes to. The Bible says that in so many places. I lift my eyes up. You need someone to look at. Biblical community is dedicated to worship. You know, one of the beautiful things about God's Word is that, is that even when it's convicting, and this is, I'll be honest, it's a good conviction. It's a good, clean-feeling conviction. I'm convicted by this, but I, but I love it. And so as you, as you think about this, as you think about, okay, dedicated to doctrine, dedicated to each other, dedicated to meals, dedicated to worship. As you think about that, what I realize is that some of you might be absolutely killing it on a couple of those. But the beautiful thing about God's Word, and especially in this way of we want to live like this early church lived, there may be things in your mind that you go, oh, I, I need to be dedicated to that. I, yeah, I've got the doctrine thing, but I have really not been in fellowship with a lot of people. Or no, I'm great at fellowship, but man, I do not, I am not invested in, in worship. And so my, my prayer is that this week, that that would just run through your mind, dedicated to doctrine. Dedicated to each other, dedicated to meals, dedicated to worship, doctrine, each other, meals, worship, doctrine, each other, meal. I mean, I hope you get so sick of that this week. I mean, I hope you're walking around going, Todd Wright put that thing in my head. One guy, I was in the first service, I did this, and he was like, man, you look like a couple of pistons up there doing that thing. He was like, but that's what you're talking about. These are the things that help us. Run. These are the things that help us be the church, dedicated to doctrine, dedicated to each other, dedicated to meals, and dedicated to worship. It's what the early church did. And listen, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of church I want us to be. I, I'm convicted when I read it for us as a church, too, about where can we invest our time and resources to do a better job of making this happen, doctrine, and each other, and meals, and worship. And so my prayer for you is that is that you would find hope in that, that you would be inspired to, to invest in that because you know that God blessed it, that he brought awe and wonder and he did miraculous things when his people dedicated himself to these things. If you're not a Christian, I, 
I want to do the thing I just talked about a minute ago. I want to make sure that you hear the gospel. We'll take communion in just a second, but I want to make sure that you know that the gospel says that you cannot save yourself. The gospel says that we have a holy and righteous God and that your sin separates you from Him and that you can't earn your way into His grace. You can't be good enough or perfect enough or nice enough to make your way into heaven that your sin separates you and God initiated a rescue plan. God sent His Son to bear your sin and to shed His blood to die as the payment for your sin and to make you righteous. And He did not stay dead. He rose victor over sin and the grave. If you have never given your life to Christ, my prayer is that you would do that today. I, I promise you, following Jesus will bring in awe and wonder into your life. I'm confident that if you would surrender to the call of Jesus and become a follower of Jesus, you will be so glad that you did. I'm going to have Jordan come up. We're going to get ready to move into communion. Let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll talk about the supper. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your grace. And Father, I pray that you help us as we take this meal that you would help us to do it reverently and help us to do it with the right attitude and um, that it would be an act of worship as we do it. We remember what you've done. Lord, we love you and we pray all this in your name. Amen.